Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of BTK. Uh, Super excited to have this edition. We're going to talk a little bit about something that we have not done in a while, and that is talking about coding and billing. A little bit of tips and tricks for you here. And we're super pleased to have Dr. Sarah Vogler, who's actually another colorectal surgeon, but she's also the Associate Chief of Staff at the Cleveland Clinic Florida region. And uh, she's got her MBA and has a very good acumen about these things and helped us a ton here at the clinic. And we're super excited to have her on. So Sarah, welcome to Behind the Knife. Yeah, thanks for having me. So um, let's just kick it off right now. So we have a lot of trainees that are uh, listening to the podcast. And, you know, one of the common questions we get is, you know, I'm a resident, uh, you know, they we, they ask us to do a lot of different things. We've got work hours, we've got this, we've got that. And how and maybe why even do I learn coding and billing? And 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 I would ask you, why don't we teach this a little bit more formally uh, in residency? Sure. So it's just one more thing to learn, right? And I remember going to residency. I don't know about you, but I kind of pretended it didn't exist. I kind of knew my attending was doing it, but I didn't learn much about it at the time. And I think that's actually how a lot of residents go through residency, just trying to learn the important stuff. So it's going to come back at some point. You have to learn the coding and billing when you get out there into practice. And the best way to start being exposed to it is to ask your attendings as you're in clinic, probably more specifically, what are you doing? As you know, Don't walk out of the room and just stop watching them. Ask them how they're doing the coding and what is even involved in the coding. For people now who are realizing that this is important, well, number one, can you give us some examples of why it's important and uh, or yeah, some examples of why it's important as well as where should we start once we made the decision, okay, this is important. I need to learn this stuff. What's a good way to kind of get started with this stuff? So you get to do all these fun things all day, but unfortunately, none of it happens, actually really happen until you document it. And then the documentation leads to what the coding and billing you know, providers are going to say, here's what you did today. So you want to learn how to do some very good documentation, and that will help guide your coding and billing. So even if you have coders and billers, that's what they're going to look at. And then you can look to those people to teach you why they're choosing specific codes. I think that's probably the first place to start are the professionals. So on that, um, I've tried, you know, I, I, I'm somebody who uh, I'm out in practice and I try to be good about, you know, my documentation, but do you have any good resources? Because I'm, uh, it's all really hearsay. You know, people say, oh, you have to code, you know, this many review of systems, or you have to make sure you include this if you want to get your, this level or whatever. But uh, a lot of that's, uh, it's, it's a mystery to a lot of us. And uh, do you have any good resources? Are you, do you go to your coders? Like, how did you do it? Where did you start? So that's how I started. I started to meet with my coders monthly when I first got out of residency and they would show me what they were coding. And then it was a back and forth as far as me asking, well, why didn't you code this? Or why did you code that? Or why didn't I get credit for this? And that's really how I learned. And once you kind of get the basics down, you can learn some of it on your own, just from different, you know, webinars and reading. So so let's jump into a little bit more specifics. And, you know, I know that you know, as Jay said, uh, for a lot of people out there, they're like, well, you know, I got Epic, it codes for me or some of whatever their EMR is, I'm just going to kind of click whatever box is, or uh, I got a coder and bill and I'm not going to really change anything anyway. And then there's outpatient and inpatient. We're, you know, surgeons, and then you got an op note and modifiers and anything, but let's, 
let's just kind of just start pretty basic. So what are the levels of visits or encounters? And, and is there a feel or a, a couple of tips that you can say, you know, should a, should a physician ever code a one or a two? I, I mean, is a three? I've seen people who they their whole lives, they code a level three for everything. Because then they're like, I'm not overcoding, I'm not undercoding. But one of the other questions I want to ask you, can you undercode? Can you get in trouble for that as well? So let's talk a little bit about the levels and the types of ENMs and a new patient versus a um, versus somebody who's a, uh, a, a consult versus somebody else who is a follow-up. So there's ambulatory coding, and then there's inpatient coding, and then there's surgical coding. But so the ambulatory coding is probably the one that almost all physicians have to deal with. And that's the people that you see in outpatient clinic. And there are different levels to that, one through five. When they changed the outpatient coding in 2021, they actually eliminated level one from a physician option. So that's more of a nursing visit. So you get to pick two through five. Uh, The lower the number, the less the complex. So if you see a really complicated patient with lots of medical problems and you're booking them for a a high morbidity procedure or surgery, then that's going to be closer on the level five spectrum. Whereas if you see somebody with a very straightforward problem, it's an in and out visit, not a whole lot of discussion, they're otherwise healthy, that's going to be more in the level two to three. So that's kind of your baseline. And then you start to dig into the details of the visit and how much time did you put into the visit? How many different things did you look at? Did you look at CAT scans and labs and other op notes? Or did you just walk in and talk to the patient? So those are the different things that there are very specific criteria that will increase your level or decrease your level. So to answer your question, can you code too low? I guess you can as far as you did a lot more work than what you took credit for, but nobody's going to get mad at you right? That's just kind of free work. Can you code too high? You can. You could try to take credit for what maybe you didn't do. I don't think most physicians probably would ever intentionally do that. If anything, that would be more of an oversight. So once you start learning coding and billing, you'll kind of learn which patients you see routinely. So you'll kind of learn, here's where I am. You're probably at a level four or five for every rectal cancer, and you have a threshold that you know bumps you one way or another. So it's tough your first year out, you have to learn all that, but really once you get going and you have your set criteria, you're not always going to be looking back at a spreadsheet or a manual. Sir, along those same lines, can you go a little bit into the difference between a consult and a new patient? And um, and can you talk about, you mentioned a little bit in terms of, in terms of time and, um, you know, coding by time or billing by time versus the MDM that you briefly referenced to. Can you talk a little bit about that? So you can get credit for different levels based on either time spent with the patient or based on how much you documented that you did during that time. So if you want to be very efficient and you get through a lot in a very small amount of time, you're going to document based on how much information you got through and what you decided, because you're probably going to be able to do that in less than, say, 15 minutes. Whereas if you have a patient who you have to go through asking how their kids are how their grandchildren are. You spend 30 minutes in there and maybe spend five minutes on really relevant treatment plans. You can build that as time spent because not necessarily because you want to take credit for all of the family gathering stuff, but there is this time spent explaining and re-explaining and then explaining to somebody else that you can take credit for or time that you spent calling radiology and you spent calling another physician to get more information about that visit. 
In that case, if you're going to spend a lot of time with that patient, your time spent may bump you to a higher level than the complexity of the problem. So we're it's ingrained into us from a very you know early um, point that if you didn't document it, it didn't happen. And uh, we all feel the burden of um, documentation, and we spend a lot more time with the health record than we do with patients sometimes. So do you have any tips and tricks for how to make that documentation so that you're, you're capturing that level of complexity that you're doing, but you're not spending an inordinate amount of time sitting in front of a computer? Sure. So the 2021 changes in coding... Uh, tried to capture just that so that you weren't sitting there documenting something that was totally irrelevant. So the only things that a physician, the treating physician really needs to document themselves are the medical decision-making and your treatment plan. And then you pick your code. So there's all these other important parts to a note that will trigger your memory and part of you remembering what you looked at as far as HPI and past medical, past surgical history. But you don't personally have to document. So if you have some of these more sophisticated uh, electronic medical records like Epic that will pull all of that into the note, great. You just take your time, even if it's bullet points in your HPI, and get down what you need to get down there and then spend your time on the medical decision-making for your treatment plan because that's where you're going to hit those key items of I looked at a colonoscopy report, I looked at a CAT scan, I looked at labs, and then I decided I'm going to operate on the patient. That's all your coding and billing is right there. It used to be that you spent all this time making this elaborate HPI. Nobody else could write it, only the doctor. Now the med student, the resident, whoever can document all of that for you. And you're just going to go to the end of your notes. Sarah, can you talk a little bit about, can you do some of this stuff like, like the day before or the night before? We spend a lot of time going through patients' records. Does that time going through patient's record, can that go into your time that you bill? Let's say if you bill by time and I spend an hour trying to pull all these records and do all that, how does that, how does that fit into the system? So one technicality that has not been totally addressed, if you ask the coder, they'll say, if you did it the day before, the week before, it doesn't really count. It should all be within the same day of the actual visit. That being said, nobody has a stopwatch out. So if you're preparing and it's like eight o'clock the night before your clinic and you're just trying to be efficient, I think there is some of the spirit of this that you're trying not to make your patient wait an hour for them to see you. So certainly document everything that you've looked up and already gone through. You know, the coders, what they really want me to say to this is it's the day of the visit. If you spend 45 minutes combing through a whole stack of outside reports and other CAT scans, then you definitely take credit for that. And you don't even have to take credit for time spent. Certainly that'll be time spent, but you may drive yourself up to a level five just because you're documenting, you've looked at all these different things, you've talked to all these different people. The other part of time spent that counts in some ways is the time spent if you have a physician um, trainee, so a resident fellow, they're in there and they're doing some of it, or a physician assistant, if they're in there doing education, that can count towards your total time spent of education for that patient. So I feel like we focus a lot, or at least at my institution, we focus a lot about the uh, coding that's that, you know, in that ambulatory setting in clinic. And we focus less so on inpatient and the OR, which is where us as surgeons, we spend a lot of our time. So how about documenting, um, you know, patients um, that we, inpatient consults that we see, 
rounds, you know, ICU rounds, um, the patients that we've operated on, patients that are partner operated on that we're rounding on. How, how do we, you know, sort that out? Maybe we're on an ACS service, so we're rounding on thirty, rounding on thirty patients. Some of them we operated on, some of them we didn't. How do we approach that? Do you have any tips for that? Sure. So if you have to prioritize, what am I going to take my time to document and code on, and when am I going to have my resident? perhaps do, and I'm just going to sign off on, then I would probably say those patients that are certainly the sickest or are new, you should put a lot more time in because that's what you're going to drive your billing from a level one, two, or three inpatient console. And the patient that you're just waiting for their bowels to wake up or waiting for them to walk more, but they're otherwise pretty much stable and it's a post-op patient, you're going to be in a global time frame, So you're not going to have to go for the visit that day that you had in the hospital. That's a great note to really have your residents work on. You can attest to it so that everybody knows you're there, but you're not going to actually generate a charge for that visit. So it's patients who are new that you haven't operated on or are sick and you're treating them for another reason other than perhaps what you operated on. So Sarah, two further things on that. And the first one is, can you talk a little bit about what is the global period? I know it may vary depending on the type of surgery that you do, uh, but in general, what you know, you know, where do we find that? And then the other aspect is, let's talk about either a complication or a readmission. So somebody's within a global period, but all of a sudden, and maybe it's, maybe they get a pneumonia and now you're treating the pneumonia and uh, you're the one who put them on antibiotics for it or something. Can you code within the global or bill within the global period for something that has nothing to do with the particular operation? Or what if they get readmitted after a colectomy? We'll use kind of what we do. I do a colectomy. They come back with an abscess on post-op day five and they get a percutaneously drained. Is all that admission for free, if you will, uh, or can you do something? So global exists, but it doesn't exist for you to have to provide this all of this care for free, essentially. So a global period for, let's just take a big category, abdominal surgery, typically is 90 days. Um, again, once you know your specialty, you'll start to learn your global. So weirdly, a hemorrhoidectomy is also 90 days, but a lot of smaller anorectal cases may be 10 days. So you'll learn what that period of time is that you're not going to go for anything as long as it's completely related to your surgery. Now, if you have a readmission or like you said, somebody develops new onset something while they're in the hospital recovering from the flexion, that's where you want to be very specific what you're treating. So a readmission that comes in, they're probably not coming back just to say, hi, I missed you. I really like to be here. So they're probably coming back more because they're thinking I'm dehydrated, I'm vomiting, I have pain a specific symptom, and that's what you're going to document for reason for admission. So it's not reason for admission post-op, it's reason for admission, say, dehydration and vomiting, because those are the symptoms you're treating now. For the most part, that is how you will build for that readmission, because there's going to be other things that you're doing that you wouldn't do in a routine post-op. In routine post-op, you wouldn't worry that necessarily they're dehydrated. So clear documentation. Certainly, if they flip into AFib or they develop pneumonia or they fall out of bed and hurt their head, I mean, those are definite things in the immediate post-op period that are not what you would expect from your typical surgery. So you're going to document and code and bill for those because they're outside of what a typical recovery period is. Okay. So we've, we've covered the ambulatory setting. We've covered the inpatient setting. Now let's move on to um, uh, what's potentially the most important, which is what we do in the operating room. How are we capturing what we're actually do to the patient? So surgical billing is something that you'll probably have done for you by coders, but it's also the most important one to talk to your coder about and learn from because it's going to be the highest RVUs, the highest 
potential portion of your productivity, you spend a lot of time in that operating room. And if you come out and say, mm, I just did an umbilical hernia repair, and you don't give any details to that, then you may have done a umbilical hernia repair that took you four hours on a morbidly obese patient that had so many adhesions that you never thought you were going to get out of there, and you had to take out a piece of small bowel in the process. Versus you did an umbilical hernia repair that took you about 20 minutes, the intern did most of it, and it was easy. So how you document all the details of your op note are important. And then meeting with your coder and starting to learn some of the nuances of different modifiers they're called. So say a 22 modifier is for a more difficult than normal procedure. How do you get credit for that 22 modifier? You're going to learn some of those nuances. I can tell you for a 22 modifier, they really like adjectives. So describing how difficult it was, how many adhesions, how they were thick, giving us specific amount of time. It took me 20, 40 minutes longer than normal. Those things will help add some substance. How about if you're doing multiple procedures, like you're doing, you know, whatever, uh, you know, uh, gastric bypass and they, they have, they have a hernia as well. And you're fixing a hernia on the way out. How do you, um, how do you, how do you document that? Is there a, a way to prioritize that or something I should be saying? So I think the easiest way is Try to list what you did. So an operation performed, one, two, three, four, five, list all the steps that you think you did. Whether you know if they're fillable or not is a different thing, and you'll learn that with time. But if you list those out, that's an easy thing for the coder to go through and read the actual operative report to see, okay, is this a billable portion of the procedure? So for example, in a colectomy, if you do a sigmoid colectomy and you mobilize the splenic flexure to be able to do an anastomosis, mobilization of splenic flexure is a billable code in addition to the sigmoid colectomy. You don't necessarily have to be the one who knows which code bills for more because each subsequent code you don't get 100% for as far as what you get paid. The coders will definitely do that. They actually, the insurance companies will even do that. So for sure, the people doling out the money are going to know which gets discounted as a multiple procedure. You just want to call it out. You know, things like using Firefly in the the operating room to check for fusion. That has a billing code. It doesn't always get paid, but it's one of those things. If you did it, then list it and try to get credit for it. We mentioned the the twenty two modifier. Talk to us a little bit about modifiers. Like, what does that mean? And what are some of the more common ones, both in the inpatient and the outpatient setting, that uh, everybody should really know? So, a modifier means that there's a basic code, and then they're using this. It's a number, a modifier they tag on the end to it that tweaks that a little bit. So maybe you did an inguinal hernia repair, but you did bilateral. So that's going to get a modifier put on it, bilateral, one on each side. Maybe you did an inguinal hernia and it took you all day and it was super hard. That's going to get a modifier. Some of the other modifiers, specifically in surgery, are things like an assistant surgeon, a co-surgeon. A bunch of little tag-ons can happen. And I, I don't think there's a way to necessarily dictate and know that you're calling out a modifier, I really think that is probably more the job of a coder or filler. But with time, the more common things that you do, you'll learn which modifiers are commonly added to your cases. Once you learn those, you're going to want to make sure they're there because they typically drive higher reimbursement. Great. I just recently learned that there's a modifier for working with a resident in clinic. I didn't know that. I just learned that like a couple of weeks ago. So for anybody, everybody out there, it's uh, GC is the modifier. So Sarah, does this vary depending on what the insurance type that the patient may have? Um, Do you have to code or bill differently if you know that they have a private versus if they're Medicare or Medicaid? So you don't have to really worry about that. There's a few nuances that'll probably be eliminated in 2023 as far as 
what Medicare will pay for for consults versus what private insurance pays for. But in general, I would approach it all the same, code it all the right way. On the back end, things will get changed in the system electronically. So your ambulatory visits code all the same. Certain payers won't pay for consult notes. They'll flip it to a new patient note. So some of those nuances, I probably would lose a lot of sleep over it. I would do your best, code the way you're supposed to. If you get really savvy with some of this stuff, there's things that you'll do repetitively and you'll know, well, I know this patient's in the 40, so they don't have Medicare. So I'm going to make sure that I don't build consult because I want a level five new. So there's some of these nuances that you'll be good at with time and repetition, but you definitely don't have to know the patient's insurance to know how to build. So we're seeing more and more, you know, kind of surgicalist or, you know, salaried employees that aren't so much in private practice, aren't really, you know, billing directly for the services. Uh, are these things important for them to know too? Um, and how can it affect their practice? So I think it affects all parts of medicine. Again, it's the way you get paid or somebody gets paid if it's not, if you're salaried. So, you know, surgical intensivists, uh, ACS services, you want credit for all of the operating, you do all the consults, you do all the time, you do procedures at bedside. All of those things have codes associated with it. There's very few things that a physician will do that does not have a code associated with it. And that's truly what justifies your time and effort during the day. Um, so again, if it's new to you and you haven't done it before, then I would ask to speak to your coders. I, you can ask that they actually audit you. Say, here, I want you to audit me for the next two weeks. And then they'll give your report back. And you can think, okay, I thought that was a level two. And it looks like it's a level three in patient consult and understand what the difference is. But they absolutely are being coded and billed credit. So since the pandemic has come up, we've seen a lot more of these virtual visits. Um, how, how are these supposed to be uh, coded and billed for? Uh, and if you do a virtual visit, is it still billable after the PHE has ended? So it looks like the way of, of the future is going to be to keep virtual visits. Initially, we weren't sure when we first started doing virtual visits if they hang on. And then when Medicare decided, okay, we're going to code these the same as ambulatory visits. So it's a level two through five. It's easy, and they're going to probably keep doing it that way. There is a modifier being added onto that code, um, even though you're going to pick what level it is the same way you would otherwise, based on your medical decision maker making. At the end, they're going to add a modifier on. It looks like after the public health emergency is over, these are all going to continue. The only nuance that has crept back in is that you do have to be licensed in the state that you're seeing new patients for. Um, if it's a patient of yours and they're from a different state and you've established care with them, doesn't matter where you're licensed, you can continue to see them. But if it's a new consult, seeing you for the first time, you need to be licensed in the state that, they're, that they live in. So sometimes we have to have the ability to document a little bit about things like physical exam and you're on virtually. How do you go about that? What are some tips there? It's amazing how much we learned by COVID that physical exam might not be quite as crucial. So sometimes you can actually have the patient show you point to where it hurts. Some of the things that we were naturally doing in clinic that we thought we really had to be present for, you can do on a virtual visit. So asking them where it hurts, asking them how much it hurts. I mean, even though you can't touch the patient, you're still going to be able to have them show you what's happening. So they can stand up, turn around, sit down, um, and do everything that you would normally ask them to do in clinic. I think the other important thing is to know that you're not necessarily getting paid anymore based on what your physical exam shows. So again, it's medical decision-making. It's not necessarily physical exam. 
previously we had to have all of these special points in the physical exam. So like a colorectal surgeon was trying to do a neural exam on patients, which is crazy. And they finally got rid of that. So you don't really need to have specific exam components. Now, I remember, so we actually did do a little bit of coding um, in, in residency. And I remember I had this attending that used to always scare the heck out of me because if I would accidentally, you know, code for, you know, a post-op visit in the global period, you would, you know, say we were going to all go to jail for fraud. I think that, you know, that fear is out there that if I over, you know, if I'm really kind of coding every little thing, they're going to, you know, think I'm, you know, trying to get one over on them and I'm going to get in trouble for fraud you know, what are the penalties or the consequences? Does that actually happen? So I feel like we actually undercode for the most part because of these fears. Yeah, we weren't ever taught how to code formally. So I think most physicians undercode out of fear of I'm just doing the right thing. And then there is also the risk of nobody wants to end up in the orange jumpsuit. And that's kind of what's hanging over your head. So by all means, you don't undercode, right? But Reality is people who, who are trying to code, say, their clinic for the day, I'm not sitting there trying to calculate how to upcode. And so I think for the most part, if you can justify, look at all these things, this is what I spent my time doing, and say the coders disagree with you. They You picked a level five, they thought it was a level four, you're not going to go to jail for that. That's not going to be like, well, you miscoded this one chart, that's fraud. Uh, no. And a lot of places will have coders looking at the codes that you're passing through and they'll be doing spot audit checks. So you'll start to see a trend. If you find that trend that you're always coding a five and they're disagreeing and it's a four, then that's when there's opportunity for education. But really the thousands and thousands and thousands of codes that get passed through to payers every day, they're not looking for that one that you made a mistake on. They're also looking for trends. So they know that most providers code on this bell curve of somewhere between like a two and a four. So if you're a provider that builds nothing but fives, you are probably going to hit an audit a lot faster. And that's unusual. So you're either doing a really good job documenting and you can explain that, or that's when it will be flagged probably by your whoever you work for, whoever's doing your coding for you. And they'll look back at your coding and say, well, here's how we need to change this. I think... There's so many catches to how you're coding that you shouldn't really worry that you're messing up one chart. Do your best, and then the audience will pick up the rest of the small changes that you need to make to move forward. So, Sarah, as we finish up here, probably maybe a very global question that uh, is is probably hard to answer. But if you will, you know, in terms of some take-home points, what are some of the most common coding and documentation errors, and how can we avoid them? You know, I think the most common ones probably on the surgical side are that you're just not getting credit for what you do. So for the most part, be very, very, very specific. Um, you know, in colorectal, just because that's the world I live in too, you think, oh, I just drained an abscess. It's just an abscess. And then you find out actually when you look at your clean building, there's actually six different types of abscess. And the RVU total range is anywhere from like 1.5 to 9. So you want credit for what you did as specific as possible. The other thing is that your coders didn't go to medical school and they're also not a patient. So there's three different languages that we all live in. We live in our medical school language. We have to live in the coder's language, what the manual says, and then we have to live in how we describe it to a patient. And those are all very different. So as you're documenting, you need to make, it has to make sense to you, obviously, but then you also will start to learn the language of the coders and how to document based on that. So I think those are the biggest things I learned is to speak their language and be friends with them. They're not trying to make your life hard. Uh, they want to learn from you as much as you learn from them. 
So they're not, you know, they're not the mean person that's causing you to not give credit for all the work you're doing. They actually do want to help you with that. So learn from that. Well, this, uh, we're, we've, uh, it's been great. We just, when we said we were doing this on Twitter, we already got a lot of interest and a lot of like activity. So I think this is, it's going to be a very, uh, anticipated and popular episode. Uh, and I think it's going to help a lot of people. So I just wanted to thank you so much, Dr. Vogler, for your time and for being with us today on Behind the Knife. Thank you. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.